all you could see was just kids just like their bodies were like shrink wrap, no nourishment at all and no hair. It was just like skin over bone. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out on your I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to you screw up. To War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Greg Hopgood is a veteran of the Australian Army. He deployed to Somalia as part of Operation Solace in the 1990s, our first battalion-sized deployment since Vietnam. Greg spoke with me over Zoom about his experiences on patrols, the mate he lost and the confronting humanitarian crisis at the time, and how he still carries his experiences in Somalia with him today. Greg Hopgood, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Well, Greg, let's jump back to the start first. Tell me, where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Malang, which I live, uh, live in now. Moved back here five years ago. I'm fifth generation down here in the town of Malang. But we grew up on a dairy farm. Dad had a dairy farm of about 300 acres. And then we had another further 500 acres, about five kilometres down the road, at a place called Nurugi. Yeah, so we grew up on the dairy farm there with Dad and three other brothers. Two of them went on to join the army, two later in life as well. And the other brother, Mark, he lives in New Zealand, so he followed in Dad's footsteps and stayed milking cows. But he's uh, he does that in New Zealand now. Went to school here and obviously high school in Strathalbyn. Yeah, went on to the army at 17. Yeah, you're a South Australian family through and through. Do you have any military history in the family or what first kind of draws your interest to the army? That dates back. I had um, Uncle Sid used to work on the farm as well with Dad when I was little. He was in the medical corps. He joined. He was a World War One veteran. And, of course, I remember Uncle Sid. Uh, he died in 76, so I was only five years old. But, yeah, I always used to wonder when he used to wear the great coat, like the old trench coat they had, and he had his battalion colours. When he used to do the hammer milling and the chaff cuttings for the cows, I used to always be in wonder of what it all meant. But, obviously, being that young age, I just thought it was like cowboys and Indians, stuff like that. My grandfather served in World War Two. Yeah, I had about three great uncles that served in World War One grandfather in World War II, no family that went to Vietnam and that, but a few of the local lads in Malang did. But, yeah, war and joining the army sort of didn't enter my mind up until high school. I was never any good at school. Primary school I enjoyed, but high school was never for me. So it wasn't until I was about 15, 16 that I started looking down into the history of the family with the, with the army and what the army was all about. And that appealed to you more than the farm life? Dad had done his back in something chronic. So we were forced to sell the farm, but the dairy industry had fallen pretty well in the 80s, like the, when it, milk got deregulated. So the, obviously there was not, no money in dairy farming anymore. And full farming in general, like family farms in general, were really um, on tender hooks. And there was a lot of debt there, I suppose. So none of us wanted to take on the farm except um, my brother Mark. So what year do you join the Army? June 28th, 1988. 
I left school, dropped out of school to join at the age of 17. Mum and Dad didn't hesitate because they knew I wasn't doing any good at school. So, and I was pretty keen by that time. I just, nothing could stop me. I wanted to join the army and I thought, to be honest, it was, I was just following in my grandfather's and family footsteps, to be honest. But when I ended up getting into the army and the first day there, it was quite um, completely different than what I expected. Looking back on it now, when I got to Kabuka there, basics, it was weeding out the strong from the weak. And the weaker ones were like sort of back squatted and then re retrained and all that. And like, I didn't want to be back squatted at all at that stage because if they get back squatted, you've got about another four weeks into it. So to get back squatted was a terrible fear that I had when I went through. But lucky enough, I, I went through and completed the 12 weeks without getting back squatted. Yeah, I just wanted to complete the basics and get on to my core training, like the infantry corps, because that's the only corps I ever wanted to go to. They used to threaten me at Kapuka, my section commander saying, Hoppy, you're not going to infantry, we're going to send you to catering or something like that. If you're looking at your family history through the years, and especially World War One, you've got that classic Australiana, Anzac, um, diggers in the trenches kind of idealism. And yeah, everyone thinks infantry when they go looking back to World War One, especially that kind of history, that's the first image that pops in your mind and it's heavily romanticised. But I can completely see a young version of you, Greg, just looking at it going, yep, yeah, I just want to be just like them and all the other corps each have their own very important function in the army but for a young teen who just wants to get amongst it, it yeah i can imagine that's not exactly where you want to end up i've got like, full respect for all the other corps for me it was either infantry or nothing else and i actually um to make sure i got into infantry i um i really dodged it up my iq test at kapuka so the only call they could give me was infantry that was the only choice i had well greg let's jump to december 1992 Tell me about the day where you first heard about this country Somalia and Operation Solace and that it was going to get up, get ready, go. Yeah, well, I was down here, a place called Lowen Creek, and my parents were living there. They lived there for about two, maybe three years. Then they came back to Malang. But that year, 92, I couldn't believe when I saw the news and that, I couldn't tell you where Somalia was on the map. I didn't even know it was in Africa or Europe or anywhere. Wouldn't have a clue. I just saw it on the news first and then I got a phone call from my parents because every time we were on, obviously, Christmas leave for six weeks, I get a phone call when I was with my ex-wife at that time at Bribey Island because there was no mobile phones. So she rings up at Bribey Island, the house I was there, because I was making my way down, driving down for Christmas to see mum and dad. But they said, um, you have to turn around, you're getting deployed to Somalia. I said, wow, couldn't believe it. Like, I haven't heard anything about this. So I just ended up watching that news that night. It was all over the news. And so obviously I ring the army back, one of our and they said, just have Christmas off and we'll fly you back. We'll fly you back Christmas. Yeah, it was Christmas Day. We got recalled back. I think Alpha Company, they were the advance party. They actually left on Christmas Day. The rest of the battalion had two weeks of pre-deployment training. So for a bit of context, Operation Solace is the Australian Defence Force's contribution to a United States-led, United Nations-sanctioned, multinational force being deployed to Somalia, essentially to provide humanitarian relief aid for the people there, for the people dying, starving. It was a humanitarian crisis kicked off in the early 90s. You said you'd watch the news, so you were sort of catching yourself up on what was happening. Leaving aside that geopolitical context, how did you just feel about the prospect of I'm being deployed to another country? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Absolutely excited. Nothing could 
getting me away now. I just couldn't believe me luck, to be honest, because I was actually, by this time, 93, don't forget I joined in 88, so this time I was a senior soldier. Yeah, I've already represented the 5th, 7th Battalion on a Duke of Gloucester Cup that I was selected on, a Duke of Gloucester Cup team, and then obviously going to one and, yeah, just getting that notice, I'm, I'm going to be deployed, I'm going to be deployed, and it's like a unified task force, like you said, mission, and we had to be working with other forces and that. I was only 21 at the time, but, yeah, I was scratching at the bit to get there. I was really, really excited. We were getting videos, the history of Somalia, how many weapons were actually in the country, like artillery pieces, rifles, ammunition, if they had an air force or a navy, they didn't have a navy. All that was pretty much depleted by the time we got there and what we were telling. But the country was broken up into different factions and uh, and like with banditry. Most of the soldiers, the fighting soldiers from the warlords like Sierra Barre and Ardeed, they were just sitting on the, the borders of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian army was slinging them back over there, brought it to us. So it was a bit of a like a tennis match there for a while. It wasn't so much we'd be dealing with the soldiers. It was just dealing with the anarchy in town because the civil war was still going around. And when that's going on, there's no stable government or anything like that. So it was ruled by the gun. If you didn't carry a gun, you wouldn't survive. And all the commodities like food and water, especially water, water was a, a massive commodity. And um, and that's why we were deployed because when the aid was rocking up at the Mogadishu Port of Mogadishu, the like Sirat Barre or Muhammad Ardi, they were the two big warlords at the time. They would go down there, shoot up all the nurses or the aid people, and they would declare all that aid for their army. So it could be pots or pans or medical supplies to food. But yeah, the biggest, the hardest thing that, to get to Somalia, what we soon found out when we got there, was actual water. That was the main thing. And I think our rations, when we first got there, they only lasted for about two weeks. And we had to tap into the American system. And then we were just drinking bottled water from Mount Kilimanjaro, these plastic bottles. And we soon found out when we got there, so well, how are we going to have a shower? Like, we can't shower in this sort of stuff. And so that's how desperate the water situation was when we got there. So we didn't shower for... I think our first shower I had was was on the six weeks mark and there was no fresh food over there. It was We started on, on Australian combat rations and American combat rations the whole trip when we were there, just eating ration packs and, and drinking this water that they ended up getting in the Shabili River up north, heavily chlorinated that water. Greg, tell me about some of the first few times you leave base and go on patrol. What it's like well when we first got there when we landed got went from Mogadishu to Baidoa and done our first patrol quite confronting actually it was one of the most scariest patrols I've been on because during the you got to remember in Somalia it was there's no police it's just complete anarchy so there's rapes and whatever you can imagine this was happening in Somalia you know and times are by 10 that's probably the thing that army didn't prepare me for was the sight the smell and the stench and the, the poverty that was there when we first moved into Baidoa, they actually took us through a Unimog truck with Charlie Company. I was with Charlie Company, 17. And our whole company just went like on a, a drive through the town and we were protected by the three-quarter cab regiment with the APCs and just to get a, an inkling of what the town was going to be like where we were patrolling, the city of Baidoa. And at that stage, there were about, at that stage when we arrived, there was 500 people dying a day through mainly, mainly women and children, mainly children because 
obviously no food, so they were dying of starvation and, you know, there was murders in town and all this sort of stuff happening. But we got a sort of an induction tour, really, at the, I can still remember, with Charlie Company. And when we're just going around, right, I can still remember standing, sitting in the centre seat in Contol truck and we could be able to look down on some of the cars that were passing us and the utes and that. And I was trying to gather my thoughts because I, I, I was the actual forward scout for two sections of platoon. And so my biggest worry as a scout, is missing something. I actually picked up an AK-47 in the back up in the one of these, um, back of this Toyota Hilux shoot, this battered up old Hilux shoot. And I yelled out to the truck behind us, and that was a platoon. And I said, there's weapon in that vehicle. I'd said it quiet. I wasn't worried or scared. I just I just pointed and said, hey, there's, a, there's an AK in the back of that vehicle. Because it obviously passed that truck. And then all of a sudden, the platoon boys, they were pretty keen to get in on a bit of a action so they just dismounted straight away and seized the weapon and and that was it so yeah that was our induction during the day because during the day it was quite quiet nighttime was just complete anarchy they would just chew this drug called chat and we'd get them to a point of uh, like a high like they were real courageous my first patrol i'll never ever forget it in my life because our co at the time David Hurley, he's the Governor General now as we speak, but I remember getting my orders group from my section commander because I was the number one scout in our section and I was going out that night. I didn't know the layout of the area that well, so it was just, they would just said, Hoppy, just pick the route that you want to patrol on. We'll go from there. One of the orders, they said, I had to stand out in the middle of the road, put my rifle up in the air with my right-angle torch and put the right-angle torch on myself so I could identify the people coming down the road like it was a, there was a vehicle coming down the road. And I had to shine the light on me and, shine, and, and show it on my rifle, just say, yeah, I'm Australian, I'm an Australian soldier, I'm here to, you know, stop the vehicle, we're here to search the vehicle. And when I got them orders, actually, that was the first time I sort of got nervous and worried. And we going, that's the most stupidest order you can actually give anyone. There's been night time. These buggers over in Somalia have been at war for years. And I'd be thinking, who in their right mind, if you're a Somalian, would hand over their weaponry? Like, that would stay and fight. I was a green soldier. I've never ever fought a shot. I've never seen anyone in act. We had no combat experience whatsoever. We were green as, but I could relate to the Somalians. They were combat soldiers. They'd obviously seen a lot more than what I had. And I was only a young person at the age of 21. So, yeah, so I said to my section commander, Brax, when I saw this vehicle coming down on my first patrol when we let out, or when I let him out, I could see this vehicle coming down the road. It was called NGO Road. It was quite straight. That meant the non-governed organisations. That's where most of the non-governed organisations like Care Australia, Goal, World Vision, the Catholic Relief Service, that's where all they were all stationed. I said to Brax on the radio, on the Motorola, like on the squad radio, I said, um, I'm not standing out in the middle of the road. Like, this is ridiculous. What if I don't like, there could be eight people in the back or four people or it could be a technical like with a, any aircraft gun mounted to it, you know, like we defied them orders and Brax goes, just make up your own mind. I think if it was me, I would just go into a hide on the side of the road and we'll just let this vehicle pass. And I remember when the vehicle was getting close, I just went into a hide. It was just behind this old bit of rubble, to be honest, because the town was all beaten up and smashed up. I didn't really make a good effort to conceal myself. You just got out of the way so you weren't going to provoke them. Yeah, I just got out of the way and hopefully I wouldn't be seen. So, But looking back on it now, if that was happened again, I would have put myself down the back of an alleyway and we would have ambushed a vehicle because because as the vehicle got closer and closer, I was getting blinded by the, the headlights 
And next thing I was just, so I put the butt of my rifle in, into my shoulder, looked through my battle sight so I could keep both eyes actually on the vehicle. In between 30 and 40 metres in front of the rest of the section. When the vehicle approached, got to about 20 metres away, I could actually see two blokes standing up and I could distinctly see the silhouette of these AK rifles. And that's when my heart started pumping. Yeah, what I remember of that about it, when it, when it went past me, I was looking at them, looking at them, and then I counted eight. There were eight people standing in the back, all armed. And I'm just going, my God, I hope they don't see me because if they saw me, it would have been pretty much on. But me being green, that's my first patrol. My heart started racing, and I was just going, please don't see me, please don't see me, please don't see me. And then all of a sudden, I'm going, oh, what about the rest of the section? What about the rest of the section? So I've actually looked right down my rifle as the, as the vehicle went past, because I was going past at about, say, 20, maybe 30 k's an hour. So I've got a bead right on these blokes in the back of the this Toyota Hilux Ute that was all beaten up. So if the rest of the section did were compromised, I would start firing straight away. But it was a surreal feeling. It was like, Everyone says, like, when they get deployed and that, oh, you, this is, you know, you're going to shoot this, but it'd be quite hard to pull a trigger on a rifle, if you know what I mean, because obviously there's civilians around, uh, you've got the rest of your section, you've got to think, oh, it's just not simple as firing, putting rounds down range, but you got them, them rounds are going to end up somewhere. So that was my biggest fear is accidentally killing someone or accidentally killing a civilian. So, but, yeah, that sort of shook, shook me up, and that was probably the best thing that could happen to me. In Somalia was that night. As it turned out, and the vehicle went past the whole section without them realising, so we called up the 3rd, 4th Cavalry Regiment, the tankies, and they actually seized that vehicle within a couple of hours or an hour later. And from then on, in my mind, it was game on. It was, I'm going to get switched on here. So if I followed them orders that were given to me by higher up, it was like actually suicide, to be honest. You learn that lesson without cost, thankfully, in that early on period. Do you settle then into a rhythm? Is it kind of a standard amount you're out patrolling and in base? And tell me a bit more about some of the how the next couple of months there unfold for you. The first two months were really hectic. It was hectic. There was no, you just got no sleep. There was no showering. There was virtually no comforts from home. Like you just had your group of men because we mainly worked in a section. So you got to know your 10 men very well. Very close, tight-knit unit. You sort of got to think more of the soldier behind you than yourself. And that's that's something I'll never get back and something I never experienced in civilian life. I was quite prepared to do that. And I think the other blokes in the section felt the same way. But those conditions must make it very challenging, especially if you're like you're sleep deprived, that will affect oh, how... sleep deprived. The first two months wasn't easy. It was absolute. Me personally, obviously, some people might have found it a lot easier, but it took a lot of soul searching and everything just to eat deep within my body just to keep going and keep going. There were section contacts regularly in town, mainly at night. You've got to remember we were doing three-hour patrols, then we'd get back and do about two hours off. And this would go on for about a week, maybe a fortnight. And so when you get back from a patrol, your adrenaline is just through the roof. Like, I don't know if any other soldiers can vouch for me, but this is what I saw and felt through my eyes, my body. So when I got back after a patrol, after, you know, having a couple of shots fired at me or you're seeing females in town getting raped, so you're doing all this sort of stuff in town and because there's no law and order. You can bust someone for murder and they would get simply get away with it. But um, then the stench of the town, like 
the orphanages. There was an orphanage that I used to really hate going past, but I got used to it after about two weeks, and that's where they used to bury the dead. They never buried their dead out near the orphanage because the orphanage ground was so bloody hard. So what they used to do, they used to chuck the kids in the sorghum bags, cover that body with rocks. When I went past the orphanage the first time, I couldn't understand how the stench, it was just ridiculous, this sweet, sickly smell. It just reminded me on the dairy farm of, dead cows, you know, and just dead animals. It was just that pugnant, real sickly smell. And then I soon found out what was under the rocks. I'm going, hell, that bloody poor kids under them rocks have obviously starved. That was near the orphanage. To be honest, I never went into the orphanage. A lot of soldiers did, a lot of medics did in that, but I chose not to go into the orphanage because I didn't want to see, to be confronted with that sort of imagery. I just wanted to sort of focus on my infantry skills as a scout and do that I was trying to avoid situations like that if you know what I mean because I knew deep down I probably couldn't handle what I would see but there was obviously situations where I couldn't avoid with uh, the smell of death all the time it's just if it wasn't a dead kid rotten in the in the street under rocks or whatever it would be like a dead donkey or a dead camel like just the place just it was relentless it it just stunk 24 7 there was no no latrines or nothing like that he had Somalis like shitting in the street, pissing in the street. All the kids, the haven for disease and that. Like the place was riddled with cholera. You were excited to deploy there to test your soldiering skills and finally put that infantryness to the test. And I mean, as this deployment goes on and you're exposed to all this, are you feeling like good about? Are you making a difference as a unit? Are you feeling good about that contribution to the people, or are you just trying to be more insular focused on? your skills and brotherhood of your section and I guess not confront the reality of the difficult situation you're in. It's amazing how the mind can work because I'm not going to suck in all this stuff around me. I'm just going to focus on my infantry skills and scouting to protect the rest of my men and they were doing the same to me. And there was a sense of pride of what I was doing. There's no doubt about that. The evidence is there, like we were saving thousands of lives the whole time there, where they, if they were going to get murdered or starved or were escorting all the nurses out to their aid stations and the refugee camps and that. So there, there was a massive sense of pride, but there was, there was a lot of damage years later with me in sort of what we'd actually seen. So it was probably that side of the deployment that I wasn't ready for. The other side, like securing stuff, whether I had to be fighting and all that. I just thrived on that, absolutely thrived on that. We had been ambushed one night. wasn't so much of an ambush. It was our own silly fault. It was, it's been glorified in the newspapers about this so-called ambush. The truth of the matter is some of us were hallucinating, falling asleep on patrols. We actually set up on a, a perimeter on the, the old soccer field in Baidoa just to get some sleep. That's all we wanted to do, just to recharge the batteries a bit and then get back out on patrol. But I still remember when we put out a bit of an all-round defence in it just as a section, like a squad level, a section level. So I've taken my webbing off to use it as a pillow and I've got hold of my rifle and I'm just about nearly asleep, to be honest. Like, I was that knackered. And all I heard was a machine gunner, Danny, say, I've spotted a, a bloke on the rooftop with an AK. And because I was a scout and I had to give my night sight uh, over to the machine gun pit so they could see. And I remember one of the blokes in the section, I can't remember who it was, but they just yelled at, just keep an eye on him. <laughs> like, you turn the clock back probably a month before that, 
and we would have really probably done something about it, but we were that knackered and tired by this time. We really just didn't care. We see gunmen all the time. We see seeing this, we're seeing that. You're desensitised to it. Yeah, so we started to become a bit lax as a section or when he said that, just keep an eye on him, all of a sudden I could just the crack of these bullets. It wasn't a fizz or anything like this. It was just a crack, like a cap gun going off over my head. And that's when it hit and just woke me up out of this. I'm trying to put my webbing on because I knew I stood up. I could possibly be shot. That was how. And next thing, another gunman opened fire. So we had then another one. So we had three gunmen firing us down on us. And I remember looking to the side because I was trying to crawl to the gun pit where the machine gunner was to get me to get me night sights. I just realised we didn't have time. We, we couldn't stay out in this field for too much longer because they've got to know. The rounds were coming in a lot more accurate, if you know what I mean. We started crawling and we were trying to crawl to this stand, this concrete stand, because we couldn't fire back. Like, it was just ridiculous. We knew we couldn't fire back. If we fired back, there was going to be civilians get killed. We couldn't take clear shots of where the firing came from because we were unsure really where the firing was coming from. So if we lit up the machine gun or lit up, Arced up a lot, shot started shooting back. We were definitely going to hit civilians, and that was going through my mind the whole trip there. The whole section, we never returned fire. Our main focus was to get undercover, and uh, SIG already put the word out to QRF to come and help us out and with the carriers to, yeah, get us into a bit of a, a safer spot. So we could obviously hear the three-quarter cab regiment and the QRF starting up and coming down the road in that. Was there about... Three, maybe four, yeah, probably three kilometres away. All I remember is just crawling and crawling on my guts. Like I said, if you stood up, the likelihood of getting shot was quite real. So I remember crawling through this field with the rest of the guys in the section. It's amazing what what it does because the adrenaline is just going right through my body. I'm actually crawling through donkey shit, human feces, everything, and just covered in it because... There's, like I said, there's no latrines. Everyone's shat on the ground over there. And um, so I'm just covered in this stuff. And I could remember getting to just about the safe, safe area and our boss comes out the back of the carrier and pops up a flare. And I'm going, oh, no, oh, shit, he's popped up a flare. And so he's popped up a, like a handheld para flare. And so when I heard that going up in the air, I knew it probably would have had about five, maybe seven, ten seconds to get up and actually run towards the carriers because once that flare popped, it would have exposed us out like into the ground and the, and the blokes that were firing could actually get more of a, a good clear beat on us. But all I remember was the flare going up through the air and then I just, the seco just goes, run. So we all got up and just ran towards the carriers and then the, Obviously, the flare pops, and by that time, we're in the, the three-quarter cab guys had lowered their ramps. And I remember running in the back of that APC, and I'm hard against the driver, and the driver's just yelling at us, get in, get in, get in, because obviously the most vulnerable point was the back of the APC, and we didn't want to be hit with a rocket or any rounds coming in, because that, that was the most vulnerable point. So we managed to get into the protection of the APCs, but I still remember the driver, because as he's pulling the ramp up with the hydraulic um, the lever, he was going off at me because I just absolutely smelt like crap. I was covered in crap and I was putting crap all through his carrier. You literally smelt like crap, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was rubbing off on his carrier and everything. And that was like his house. You know? That's where they all slept in them, you know. So he wasn't happy, but we all joked about it in the end. And in the end, the three three gunmen just, they dissipated away. We returned to base and then off patrolling again. We had soldiers falling asleep on the streets. Every time we stopped, you know, if I was 
called up the section commander, oh, I'm going down this street or I'm going there, I'm going here, and he'd say, yeah, okay. And then our lance corporal would have to go down the line because there'd be soldiers lying on the side of the road about to sleep. It was just, that's how sleep deprived we were during that tour. That really sticks out with me, just lack of sleep. And obviously the water, you know, like drinking 20 litres of water. With the sleep deprivation, you've got the threat, the real threat of being killed if you're not on your toes. Then there were other times in Somalia that we weren't patrolling. We had too much sleep. Sometimes you'd be so bored when you weren't doing patrols, like you're doing food convoys or whatever, you'd be back at base and you'd be getting tasked to do other stuff like coordinate searches and all this sort of stuff. You'd be that bored after about four, five, six days, seven days, eight days, whatever it took. You were hoping something would happen, especially when we were tasked as quick reaction force. We were actually hoping something would happen. We were going, please, something happened. Because we were going... Um, and minds were going crazy, to, just to be honest, like through boredom. We were hoping for the radio to go off so we could actually help someone out. So, Greg, over time, you said, for example, you tried to stay out of the orphanage and not confront yourself with the reality of the situation. But were you having much experience in, say, the refugee camps and things like that over time? When we had to escort the medicine front, uh, was it Doctors Without Borders? They were known as Medicine Sand Frontiers, volunteer doctors, and so we had to escort them out at the refugee camps or the orphanages and that, where all the all the kids were starving. Couldn't avoid it then because, to be honest, the kids in town were quite healthy. It was just out when you had to do the long-range patrols out in the deserts and that and the different farming communities. They were the ones that really were starving. The aid wasn't getting to. No water, no food for them, no medical attention or anything like that. When we did go out to them villages, either by truck or uh, armoured personnel carriers or helicopters. A lot of the times we were on we were in helicopters. Sarge Dono told me to go and help out one of the doctors that were weighing the kids in the orphanage. I'm going, oh, here we go. So I walked in there and next thing, all you could see was just kids, just like their bodies were like shrink-wrapped, if you know what I mean. It was, they had no, no nourishment at all and no hair, bloated stomachs. Some had bloated stomachs, some didn't. Some, some were really inverted and you could count every single rib, their kneecaps, every bit of, it was just like skin over bone. It was confronting. And I remember, and I haven't told this story to too many people. One of the doctors there said, pick up one of the kids and put them on the scales to weigh them. When I did pick up one kid, I could honestly, I could pick that kid up with one finger. And I was just horrified. I, like I said, I was never prepared for that. And that's the only sort of thing that really upset me over there. I broke down in tears at the time. The doctor said, get him out of here. He's not taking it very well. I was put out on security duty outside the wire. But I remember when I got out to the wire, the concertina wire, there was this one kid, just two kids at the base of my feet, and they had a, two cans of peanut oil. And I was just crying and crying and crying. As I'm just looking at it and saying, God, what a sorry sight this is. This is just pathetic, you know. So I actually had that that real strong feeling of what's going to come with these kids. And so I asked a question to one doc, you know, I said, what's going to happen to the kids? And he said, oh, they must be probably dead, probably either tomorrow or the next day. And then it started going through my mind. I said, how can we put them on the truck? How can we do this? How can we do that? You know, we're here to help them. And but, but mathematically, you couldn't. There was so much starving and kids dying in that area. You couldn't help them all. So you had to leave that task up to the doctors. And my job, I had to focus and get back in my mind that I'm here to secure, to make a secure environment for the doctors. And that's how I got through that. You never stop thinking about it. But even to this day, you sort of think, 
what happened to them kids, but deep down you knew they were probably dead, you know, two or three days after we'd gone there. But in my mind, I was just, how do we get them back to a hospital? How do we do this? How do we do that? But you know, I, I had to really stop thinking that way because it was just dead end road. You just can't think like that. That doesn't lead anywhere healthy. And I think instead you can reflect on all the people's lives you did save and help by being there and what that task force was doing. And you couldn't save everyone in that absolute tragedy of a situation. Exactly right. That's how I got through that deployment. I just concentrated on my role. Still, there was other days where you'd be doing the same thing and like death looking at you the whole time. I sort of look at some of the funny stories when I was over there. Because we were on combat rations the whole time and in town because we secured the city of Idoa within the first two months or first eight weeks, I'd suppose. And then food, like fresh food from Kenya and all that started arriving into the marketplace in Idoa and that. And they started making sorghum bread all this sort of stuff. So the Sarge comes back with a garbage bag full of sorghum rolls. There were strict orders never to eat anything over there because the water was full of cholera. In the American, the meal ready to eat, we had a ham slice in them. And I said to the Sarge, I said, imagine a ham slice in a nice hot baked sorghum roll with melted cheese. And that got me. So the Sarge goes into town and gets a bag of sorghum rolls. Cut a long story short, I'd eaten this sorghum roll with a ham slice and cheese in it. And then within an hour, we got Noticed to move, we had to do a cordon and search with Delta Company and the rest of the company, Charlie Company. Our company was to patrol eight hours through this desert at night time while Delta Company would arrive in helicopters and sweep through and do a cordon and search and we'd be the blockade out the back, if you know what I mean, and or we'd capture all the gunmen that had fled in the village. When I got the orders, because I was the lead scout out of the whole company for, for taking through this desert this night and would have been about two hours later, I'm sitting behind the machine gun ready to leave and Brax comes up to me and goes, you know, five minutes notice to move, you know. And I heard this massive rumbling in my stomach. It was like, oh, no, oh, no. And, like, you got these windows that you have to, these objectives on the way where you had to be. We needed to cordon this village off so Delta Company could come in and sweep through it that morning so we had to get to this objective and it took us eight hours to get to the objective and we, so we had to patrol through the night but the first five minutes they were brax me section man it gives me me bearings on the compass where i had to follow and um so there was no time to to do a shit or anything like that so i just said right that's it and as soon as i got up there was no control you couldn't couldn't control it so I actually just shat all through my pants I, and that just went down my pants down to me blousing in me GP boots. So I walked like that and I had dysentery for that whole trip and it was just like water. A terrible feeling, but then I had to um, keep my mind on the objective. So I just went for about six hours just shitting my pants the whole time. <laughs> so I look back at it now, it was quite a funny story, but I wasn't in a very good place at that time. Greg, we are recording today on the 2nd of April 2021 and I understand that it's a rather memorable date looking back to that date in 1993 for you when yourself emailed me back about a week ago it never occurred to me up until about two or three days ago that the interview is going to be taking place on the 2nd of april it's probably one of the lowest moments of my life thinking about it because today's like the anniversary as we speak and that was one of my mates from delta company to be honest i didn't know him that well we were exactly the same age i think we're only about four four weeks apart correct me if i'm wrong i think if liz hears this i was actually on the phone to his mother this morning she had called through just to just to check on me to see how i was because i made her a poppy a week ago because i do a lot of blacksmithing so i made her a poppy put on um shannon mcelaney's grave he's buried up at forbes but that night i was on the front game with my mate lance corporal adam usher and um the call had gone through that 
a soldier had been shot in town. It's one of them feelings you get in the stomach, like you, you, you get this sickly feeling and you think, oh, my God, one of our own's been hit, you know. And we this is on the April. So we'd been there since January the 24th or 20th, yeah, something like that, the, just about three quarters away from January, I think. Well, halfway through January, we got to Somalia. And so then, of course, in the lead up in that time, we'd had one of my mates in the section been shot in the throat, accidentally been shot in the throat in the back of the truck, and we had to patch him up. So, But he ended up surviving and all that. But to actually hear someone being shot in town was quite a sickly feeling because I was on the front gate and I got the radio message to let the APC that was coming through because obviously Shannon had been shot. All the tension, like, through the battalion was to keep this bloke alive. And I remember the APC coming up the road when I was on the front gate. I'm just praying to God, thinking, I hope this soldier's okay. I didn't know who it was at the time, but I knew it was someone from Delta Company. And it turns out it was Lance Corporal Shannon McElhaney. He'd come through the front gate. I could hear the the voices in the carrier, and I think it was uh, Worm, one of the medics, was working on him at the time because the round that he copped came up under his flak jacket yeah, it wasn't a contact situation it was they were going out from this compound in the city of Bardoa they'd stopped when he'd handed his mate the rifle so they can get his bush hat out of his back of his bum pack and when he handed his weapon to him the weapon accidentally discharged and the round went through up under his rib cage and then sort of deflected off his the back of his flak jacket and then the round came back and sort of took out his innards of his kidney and liver and all that so he only had a little bit of time because obviously he was bleeding out. Um, I remember when he came through the front gate, Adam, my 2IC, he popped his head in and had a look. I didn't want to look, but I could hear what was going on and it was a, quite a profound moment in my life. And um, I was still at the gate and I'm just praying this soldier, you know, I'd get the news that he's been, um, he survived and he's getting medical treatment and all this, but deep down on you, the severity of the wound. Major Moon, uh, OC of Charlie Company, I saw him come wandering down and he got our section together and then he said, a soldier from Delta Company, Lance Corporal Shannon McElhaney, has just died on the on the operating table, just bleeding out. But Shannon was given his, because the Padre was there and that, they told Shannon because he was going in and out of consciousness and that. And when he came to, he, if you got any last words, Shannon, you're going to die. So he knew he was going to die. So he actually said, his last words and it was a Lance Corporal McSwan and he said tell Swanee he's my best mate and tell mum and dad I love him yeah and that's yeah quite hit me pretty hard but, but yeah I suppose it hits me today as much because it's the anniversary and today that'll be oh, sorry breaking down a bit but it's um, especially his mum ringing this morning just checking up and I, I wouldn't have been the only one Liz would have rang a few more in the, the battalion because it's it's like having another mother now, if you know what I mean. It's like we lost a soldier, but we gained a mother. Like she'd lost a son, but she gained 700 other sons, if you know what I mean. Well, I appreciate, Greg, you sharing this with me, and especially on a significant date like this. I was unaware, of course, when we made this arrangement, but thank you for sharing that. Well, Greg, you wanted to desperately get out of Somalia by that point, and it's a bit over a month later in the second half of May, one RAR finally gets to pack up and leave the country, and it's been quite a it's only been what five ish months but it's been very busy from some of those funny moments some of the so from the dysentery to the hallucinations to the mixed amount of rations to the close calls and crawling through literal shit and being yeah. and seeing what you were seeing with the refugees and the children and of course 
losing a mace. It's been quite a confronting deployment for a 21-year-old. When you get home, the adrenaline, I guess, of that starts to wear off and perhaps fatigue sets in. How do you transition back into just normal Australian life back home over the next uh, few weeks and months once you touch back down? Well, when I got back, it was, I thought I was going to have me Christmas leave, to be honest, when I got back. I actually, it was, there was no break, to be honest, because our section would be selected for the Jigger Gloucester Cup team to represent the battalion against the other battalion. So, so it was all full on. It was, yeah, a lot of them went on courses and that, where our section, two section, that, and a few of the other guys that fill up our section from Semba Team were all veterans from Somalia by this stage. And where did the Duke have lost the cup team? When do you leave the military then, Greg? In 94. So I had to wait six months to go through the discharge procedure and all that. And I just wanted out of the army. I guess you'd got to test the infantry skills in Somalia, which was the main excitement for you going there. But then from the sounds of it, you also felt a bit, okay, I've, I've done that. And I'm also a bit burnt out from the process. Yeah, I was burnt out. I'd never tell the guys that at that particular time of my life. I'd never tell them I was burnt out because the stigma that, that was carried from it, it did ruin a, ruin a lot of guys mentally. Uh, that deployment, to be honest, sometimes I feel sorry for my mum, but as soon as I got deployed, just as soon as I got back from deployment from Somalia, my other brother David, he got deployed to Rwanda, and I knew exactly what he was going to be confronted with. I just wanted out of the army, to be honest. The patrolling and that I thrived on, but just that environment, of Somalia just ruined me inside as a soldier, if you know what I mean. I, I, I'd never say that. I would have said that at that time. And all I wanted to do was get out of the army and just be a normal normal civilian and just a, you know, nine to five job or something like that where I can go home. And in reality, when I did leave the army, I got work in a vineyard straight away. And the transition, we had no training or anything like that, transitioning back into civilian life and that. And I remember the first day when I rocked up out of Mildura Blast in a vineyard and I had a hand hoe and I was hand hoeing weeds and I'd be thinking, God, I've just seen all this, I've done this, I've, I've had so much training as a soldier and look at me now, I'm hand hoeing weeds out in the vineyard. That really was a bit of a low point in my life. There's all my other mates I went to school with and that they had sort of some of them had real good jobs and, and all my skills were was just infantry skills. So but I remember the first day I rocked up out at work there, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, when I was leaving, finished knocking off from work at four o'clock. I couldn't put the hand hoe down to just get in my car and go home. I had to be told to go home. I didn't understand the civilian work ethic, like the work. I couldn't believe people would just drop down and tools and jump in their car and go home. So I actually stayed out in the vineyard for a further half hour and the boss sees me out there and he comes out and he starts yelling at me. And I said, look, boss, I'm, I can't. I've got to keep working. Like, I, need a, I need you to tell me to go home, like a knockoff parade, you know? A dismissal parade. He's worried you're going to charge him for overtime or something. Yeah, that's what he was. He was saying, I'm not paying your buddy overtime. Go home. <laughs> See you at the 7 o'clock in the morning, you idiot. I'll be just going, oh, this this is really weird. So that never really changed for about a good two, maybe three years. I never adjusted to civilian life at all, even to this day, to a degree. I sort of buried a lot with alcohol. I got diagnosed 15 years later with chronic post-traumatic stress and that's when I had my own business I had to find jobs where I had to be working by myself that's when I got into security with a guard dog and I found thinking about Somalia it was going through my mind every realistically every five seconds of the day I just could not get it out of my head and I didn't know what PTSD was I didn't want and even if I did say I had pity the stigma was just was chronic like I didn't want to be known as a failed soldier all this sort of stuff going through my mind but in the end it got too too much for me and I ended up going to 
Royal Australian Regiment Association and they put me on a veterans course out in the Flinders Ranges for veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I hadn't been diagnosed with it at, at that stage. I didn't know about DVA or anything like this. I just wanted to see if I can get some help. What had happened when I went on the veterans camp in the Flinders Ranges with some Afghan and Iraq veterans and Timor vets and Rwandan vets that I did have a problem and it just hit me right, the slapped me right in the face because I, after that course, I think I cried for about five days straight and I couldn't stop crying. It was like a mammoth relief from me, but um, they ended up sending me to a psychiatrist after that and within 45 minutes, the psychiatrist already shared, diagnosed me with chronic post-traumatic stress and even then they wanted to put me out to pastures and that like on a pension and there was no way I was going on a pension. How do I tell my family about PTSD? How do I tell my kids? All this sort of stuff. So there was a mammoth stigma with that. So I kept working for three years after that and then so I had a I virtually had a mammoth breakdown and couldn't leave the car one one day. And so I had to ring my psychiatrist and then they put me in to the veterans mental health ward and I stayed there for about seven weeks. I had to take the pension in the end. Though I didn't want it, I knew deep down that was my only option. I couldn't work. Folded up my business. I had a mobile dog wash business in the Adelaide Hills. So I worked that for 12 years and then that closed up within about a minute. Yeah, it was still trying to tell my family and all my mates that I deployed with and all that. But as soon as social media hit, I found out nearly three quarters of my platoon were already suffering and pensioned off, uh, which gave me sort of some relief in a way. But then again, I felt sad that, uh, like, I felt good that I wasn't the only one, but um, I felt sad about so many soldiers being pensioned off and, that, and the effects that Somalia did have on them. I've learned to deal with it now. It's sort of, it's not going to leave me. I've come to that fact. I don't like talking about it in pubs and that. The only time I sort of feel comfortable talking about it is with my section. Not a minute went past where I was sort of dwelling back on Somalia and what I'd seen and having all these images flashing through my mind where I had no control of. But now through medication and courses and talking to people and mindfulness and all this sort of stuff, it's helped me, helped me immensely. It sort of cost me my marriage and some friends and that because I wasn't in a good frame of mind for quite some time. But at the moment, life's really good. It's sort of, even though I still get emotional still about it, I can understand my triggers and, and move on and sort of start talking about this like with you today. Years ago, I wouldn't be able to open my mouth about it, to be honest. I want it to go away, but I've realised it won't go away. So the best thing is that is actually talking about it and explaining what PTSD is and what I'd seen and what I was involved in at that time at a very young age. Well, Greg, I am very glad you came on to share this with me today. Thank you. Because as you discovered when you say got on Facebook and saw how many others of your section or Somalia veterans were affected, that you're not alone in this. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's a really important message to spread. And I am sorry to hear about the difficulties you've had over the years, although I am glad to hear that you're in a better place for it now. You've found some help, you've found some solace and a better place in life. I'm really glad for you. And this is not an uncommon story, whether we're talking about Somalia or Rwanda or Timor or Afghanistan or Iraq, where you have a bunch of young, keen soldiers like you were at 21, keen to go test yourself and do some good work. Like 1RAR was successful in improving the security situation in Somalia and it 
earn the respect of all the NGOs operating in that region. And so you made a difference. And I think it's um, up to someone else to try and maybe it's probably up to guys like yourself to decide was that worth it. But certainly you made a contribution and thank you for your service to our country and Somalia as well. Been a big good talk, even though the on the date and all that. But um, yeah, I, like I said, now I, I am in a, a pretty good spot. I've taken up blacksmithing. I do a lot of sculptures, do a lot of metal sculpturing and that now. And but it, it's taken a long, long road to get to where I am today. Life's good, to be honest. Well, Greg, I think there's a lot of uh, good lessons here to take from your story, both of service and out of service. Thank you for coming on Life on the Line. That was my conversation with Greg Hopgood. To hear more stories about Somalia, in Season 3, check out number 47, Graham Connolly. Well, these guys didn't ask my permission. They just shot him. 1,400 metres, clean kill. And the bomb stopped. Number 54, H Volume 1. It's, we're going through that door, or we're sliding down that rope, or we're blowing this, or we're diving in here, or flying in there, or whatever, and this is it. It doesn't matter how many of us come out. And number 72, Craig Cook. We came in there, there was RPGs flying past us, there was mortars impacting around us, and uh, the Marines were pinned under the bridge, and a lot of them had run out of ammunition. To see photos related to this chat, you can check out the YouTube version of this podcast, youtube.com slash podcast, or visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, at L-O-T-L-Pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>